Before I uh, enter into the message, I'd just like to say a, a word of thanks to the congregation for the uh, privilege of being among you these past eight months as your transition pastor. It's been a, a very strange time. The, the first uh, couple of months, we were entirely uh, online. So who you were uh, remained in many ways a, a mystery to me. And then we had some time together where we were almost all of us masked all of the time, so we were still a bit incognito. Um, had circumstances been otherwise, no doubt we would have had more time and more occasions to get better acquainted, but it's been a, a delight to, to get to know you as, as much as I have, and a particular uh, particular day-to-day -day blessing to be able to meet with the, the rest of the staff, with, uh, with Kathy and Mandy and, and Vince and Julie, uh, to pray together, to pray for each other, to pray for the ministry of the congregation and the wider world. And I'm, uh, as I go, uh, I know that, that you are in, in good hands, uh, and above all, in the, uh, the loving hands, the loving arms of our Heavenly Father. As, uh, as one retires from 45 years of uh, preaching every Sunday, the, the challenge always, the challenge still can, continues to be figuring out what to preach on. Um, not, that, not that I don't have any ideas about what to preach on. I have more ideas than I do uh, occasions to uh, expound upon them. But it's, uh, there's really, there are really not that many sermons to preach, truth to tell. Uh, in reality, there's only one sermon that should be preached and needs to be preached. And, and the real challenge in preaching is finding the appropriate point of departure in Scripture for preaching that, that same message uh, week in and week out. And so I, I decided this morning just to keep it simple, uh, not, not for your sakes, uh, not that you're simpletons and, and can't follow <laughs> complex ideas, but really more for my own sake that um, uh, that on the occasion of, uh, of retiring from full-time uh, uh, transition ministry, I, I don't uh, launch into reminiscence and <laughs> all sorts of, of useless uh, nostalgia. So, so what I thought I would do was uh, preach uh, on Titus, which... Uh, which I was drawn to because it seems to me to be a, a wonderful uh, transition from our uh, 12 weeks or so in, in the book of Acts this past summer. And you, you really would hate to see 12 weeks on the book of Acts go to waste, uh, so to speak, because it, having gone through Acts and, and seen the questions that the book of Acts answers that we would not have known otherwise, uh, we're having gone through Acts, there are questions that the book of Acts raises that we obviously can't answer uh, apart from reference to other places. One of the things that we noticed as we went through the book of Acts that it's the story of a missionary movement. It's the, the missionary expansion of the church from Jerusalem to the, to the ends of the earth. Um, and for, for the, the latter part of, of the summer, we, we talked about the missionary journeys apart from, away from Judea and Palestine, into those places where uh, the word of, of the, the God of Israel was a, a new thing. Uh, the one thing that we know that the missionaries did as they 
went around the Mediterranean world planting churches was appoint, they appointed elders. And that's really just about all we're told about what the apostles did when they started churches on their missionary trips. They, they made sure that these churches they started had, had elders. Uh, if you saw the announcements before church, you're reminded that uh, September 12th is the deadline for you to turn in your nominations to the nominating committee for elders and deacons. So we're, uh, we're still doing that. We're still appointing elders in churches to lead and guide the churches. Titus is, uh, Titus is a wonderful point of transition from the, the missionary history in the book of Acts to, well, what did these churches do? What was, um, what was expected of them? What, what dynamic was to characterize these churches? Sometimes the apostles, they spent two or three weeks in a town and said, well, we've got a church and, and uh, maybe we'll get elders the next time we come through. But uh, they just kept moving on, but, but they had some very definite expectations. Titus is written uh, by Paul to one of his missionary associates named Titus. And he's left in the, uh, on the island of Crete or if you're Greek, it's Crete, but uh, we, we say Crete. Um, and he was left there, Paul says, I, I left you there to put things in order that, uh, you know, tie up the loose ends that I didn't have time to tie up, and so that you could appoint elders in all the churches. So that's, uh, that's what Titus is about, and it's a, a wonderful step forward from the... Uh, uh, the study of the book of Acts to, to then zero in, well, they planted these churches, they got elders in place for them. What did they, what did they expect them to do now? How did they expect them to live? What, uh, what, were, the, what were the thoughts that they wanted to be uppermost in the minds of these new churches? Clearly what we see reading in the epistles is that it's almost always about character. There's a lot of doctrine. There's a lot of doctrine. But the doctrine is always related to character. It's always related to conduct. It's always related to a way of life. So if, if you uh, look at the very first verse in the, in the letter to Titus, it, he talks about the truth that is in accordance with godliness. Not about the truth that's out there as just sort of ab abstract propositions for people to ponder and philosophize or, or theologize about, but the truth that accords with godliness, Titus 1.1. And as uh, he goes on to provide uh, things that should be themes of instruction for the people, he goes into areas of very ordinary life, areas of what it means to, to live as Christian people in households. And, and one of the things that comes to light there, sort of indirectly, uh, one of the questions that we would always like to ask is, well, how did they evangelize? What was their plan for reaching their neighbors with, with the good news? Did, what was their strategic uh, uh, plan for uh, reaching out to the surrounding areas with the gospel, which we, which we know that they did, uh, because uh, in some of the letters they talk about churches that were started by other churches that the missionaries had gone to. So there is this missionary impulse that continues. But uh, when you read through the letters, there's always doctrine, 
but the doctrine is for the sake of learning how to live in a way that accords with the doctrine. So that if you look at the beginning of Titus chapter 2, uh, the first 10 verses, uh, they present sound teaching uh, for Christian households, and this teaching aims at a way of life uh, that lends credibility to the faith. And I won't read all of this, but just in, in 2, uh, 1 to 5, there's a word to older men, older women, and younger women, and they are to live in such a way that, quote, God's word will not be slandered. So the word is out there, and their lives are to be in such a way that the word that's out there will not be spoken ill of. In uh, 2, 6 to 8, this is a word for younger men, and it's, it includes uh, Titus as well. Uh, including Titus himself, they are to live in such a way that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Wow. And then uh, verses 9 through 11, slaves, household slaves, in the vast majority of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves. A lot of the early Christians were slaves. Uh, there was no civil rights movement out there on the streets for them. Uh, but so many of them became Christians. Slaves are to live in such a way that they adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. So the word is out there. It may, just, it may be a, a word that masters become aware of through conversations with their slaves. It may be a, a word that neighbors uh, become aware of just interacting with uh, people in Christian households or out there. The word is out there, and the burden of... Paul's letter to Titus, the burden of his letter to Timothy, the burden of almost all the epistles, if you take the time to read through them, they start with doctrine, and then there's application, and it's always about living in a way that is worthy of the gospel. I'd like to move on to our text that I want to focus on, because here in, in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, you have a, a, a for instance you have a particular instance of the one, the one sermon that preachers always need to preach, uh, always need to be looking at, always need to be bringing forth, turning it this way and that way, uh, depending on the time, depending on the occasion. But here, here is the word. And this is, this is the first time Paul gives it to Titus in, in the letter. In a few verses down the road, he'll give it again and turn it in a slightly different direction. But essentially, the very same message. It's so, you know, uh, it was like New York, New York, so, so good they named it twice. In, in Titus, the gospel is so good. You get it twice in very brief compass. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way, in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. The heart of the, heart of the Christian message is that the grace of God has appeared in the world. And that's, that, is the reason why, that, is why, that is the reason why slaves were to 
adorn their conduct so that their, their masters would not uh, be critical of the faith. That is why uh, young men were to be self-controlled so that people wouldn't have anything bad to say about Christianity. That's why the older men and the older women and the younger women were to be self-controlled and to devote themselves to godliness so that, so that the faith would uh, be regarded with greater credibility out there, out there in the world. Why, why is that the case? Because the grace of God, the grace of God has appeared in the world. And that is the, that is the bottom line, that is the starting point of the Christian view of life in this world. We, we live in a world that is uh, undoubtedly uh, deeply, deeply broken. We live in a world where uh, there is no end of trouble. We live in a world where, uh, though we may not see it, most people, their day-to-day existence is really, really hard. And we, we are uniquely blessed compared to the greater portion of the world. But even from our sort of uh, safe vantage points, we see, uh, we see what a hard world it is. And, and living near urban areas, you know, we can, uh, we live near Indianapolis. I don't know, there's been over 100 murders in Indianapolis, and, you know, the year's a little over half done. And that's more than last year. And that's the big cities and in the out-of-the-way places. Uh, suicides or overdoses uh, from people taking uh, the wrong kind of drugs. Those are on, it's epidemic proportion. You know, we can see, you know, the, everywhere we look, there are signs of brokenness, and we wonder, uh, what, what is going on? Is there any hope? And the central message of the Bible is that the grace of God has broken into the world, and the grace of God is the final word, because the grace of God breaking into the world means that God has set about, and in fact, God has done what needs to be done to put the world to rights. God has done what needs to be done to put the world to rights. Now, it's not finished yet, but all that needs to be done to put the world to rights has been done. The grace of God has appeared. And, and notice, uh, notice what the grace of God does with the people of God. It's, and it's, a, it's, sort of, it's, it's a manifestation of how God is putting the world to rights. He's starting, he's starting with his own people. And in the work that he is doing with his own people, he is giving the world a sign that he is putting the world to rights. What does the grace of God do? It disciplines us. It disciplines us. I think the, uh, the Pew Bibles that you have, the CSB, says, uh, teaches us or instructs us, which is, it, which is fair enough, but it's a stronger word than that. It's the, uh, the Greek word is paideo, which is to, to train someone. Uh, it's to, and in fact, often it, it means to chastise or to correct, sometimes to punish. But uh, when Paul uses it, it he has in view uh, setting us in, into a, a, an orderly, disciplined life. Uh, in, in the book of Acts, Stephen preached the sermon, it got him into a, you know, led to his martyrdom. But in, in the course of his sermon, he referred to Moses and he said, Moses was, uh, Moses was raised 
in all the wisdom of Egypt. And it's the same word. Moses was trained in all the wisdom of Egypt. He was brought up. He was, uh, his character, his life was formed uh, in all the wisdom of Egypt. He was, you know, Pharaoh's daughter found him in a basket in the Nile, took him home, raised him in the palace. He was, he was trained to, to lead in Egypt. Uh, Paul, when he was, when the mob, we had that a few weeks ago, the, the mob surrounds him in Jerusalem when he comes there at the end of his uh, third missionary journey. The, the Roman centurion allows him to speak, and he begins his talk, he tells his story, and he says, uh, you know, I'm a Jew from Tarsus, I was, I was born in, in Asia Minor in Tarsus, but I was, I was brought up here in Jerusalem, and I was trained at the feet of Gamaliel in the law of our ancestors. So it's, you could almost, he was educated, you know, he had... His life was formed in a particular way, and it's, it's the idea of a discipline. The grace of God appears savingly. What does God's saving grace look, look like in people's lives? The Spirit graciously imposes a discipline on their lives that changes their lives. And this being a discipline, there are, uh, there are aspects about it that, are, that we would have to acknowledged seem to be restraining. And those two restraints are, are there in the text, really uh, just, just uh, exposing the grammar of uh, 2, 11 through 14 really constitutes a sermon. But the first thing that the discipline does or the instruction does is it uh, causes to deny. It says, instructing us to deny godlessness, and worldly lusts. The, a better translation would be uh, renouncing. So the, the first dimension of the discipline that salvation brings into our lives is to lead us to some renunciations, some things that we say no to. And that, that sounds really negative, doesn't it? I have a friend who's quite insistent. He says, I'm not going to be known in the world by the things I'm against. And I say, you know, that's fair enough. You know, I don't want to know all the things you're against. But uh, a lot of times that's the way Christians, that's the way we see our calling is to, you know, go out into the world and let everybody know what we don't like going on in the world. As, as Christians, though, we start with ourselves and we look there into our own hearts, and the discipline of the gospel, the discipline of salvation, the discipline of the grace of God is to look at those things and that are contrary to the will of God and to renounce them. One of the, one of the things that I love about the traditional liturgy for baptism in the Reformed churches is where the liturgy starts. Where There are three questions that are asked. The EPC, they've got I don't know how many. They, 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 EPC loves to multiply questions. But in the, in the traditional Reformed liturgy for baptism, the first question is, do you renounce sin and evil in your life? The first question is not, have you invited Jesus into your heart to be your personal Savior? It's not the first question. first question is, do you renounce sin and evil? And that goes, that goes right to Titus 3. Or that goes right to Jesus preaching the kingdom. Jesus appears in Galilee saying, repent. 
which is a kind of renunciation. It's a saying no to things and turning a different direction. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then the second question is, who is your Lord and Savior? Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And the third question is, will you be a faithful member of Christ's church? That's it. Those are the three questions for baptism, historically in the Reformed, as well as in many other Protestant churches. There is a renunciation. The discipline of grace is that there are things that we say no to right off the bat. And if we don't, we won't make progress. And then the other discipline at the, at the other side is waiting. So the, the discipline, discipline, disciplining us, first of all, by renouncing, and second of all, by waiting. We renounce things that pertain uh, to the evil of this world in this present age as we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And waiting, too. You know, who likes to wait? There's, we hate waiting. We, you know, we drove into Stowe yesterday, and we got almost, almost to Graham Road exit, and, and the traffic stopped. I had to wait like five minutes to get to the off-ramp. You know, it's just so annoying. <laughs> and that's just, you know, that's just driving down the highway. Life has, you know, there are a lot bigger things in life than that. So that we renounce and we wait because this present age, this present age is not ultimate. This present age is broken. This present age will pass away. This present age is under the judgment of God. And it will, when the Lord appears, it will all be over with. And so we learn the discipline of waiting for the, the coming age in which we belong. And living now is to be a sign that this age will not last, this age is not ultimate, uh, and that there is uh, something for us to set our hope on. So this is, this is what the gospel does. This is what grace does when it gets a hold of people's lives. It puts them under discipline of saying no, no to those things that I'm tempted to do and really drawn toward, but in, in uh, sobriety, in sensibility, I see that they are a lie. I see that the end of those things is death, and so I say no, and then I wait for what is coming. And we, we live our lives uh, in this present age soberly, justly, godly because of what's coming. So, again, the emphasis is on people of, people of character, people of godly character. It's important. Why should, there people of God, why should Christians live godly lives? Because the grace of God is broken into the world. And then, of course, in verse 14, uh, he gets to the clincher. And, and by the way, verses, verses 11 through 14 are one sentence in, in Greek, in, in the original uh, text of the New Testament. Most English translations uh, don't give us credit for being able to follow thoughts too far down the road, so they break these things up for us. But uh, verse 14 refers to... Uh, the, the glory, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, who gave himself for us. And the reason this is important, it's not that we lose the tread of thought, but in, 
in, in uh, Paul's composition, in Greek composition, uh, these long sentences that go on and on and on that our English teachers didn't like and discouraged us from writing, in, in Greek rhetoric, this is high style. And, the point, and, the, and these long sentences that go on and on and on, they're called period sentences because the, the thing that the writer is really passionate about comes at the end. It comes at the period. So that it's, uh, it's like a crescendo you know, in music, when, when the symphony moves on and on and on towards the, the climax, the, you know, the, the, the music gets louder. More instruments start playing. It's moving up to the, to the, the crescendo of, of, the, of the performance. These, three, these four verses, 11 through 14, they're a crescendo. Not that one verse is truer than the other, but he's leading up to something that he wants, you know, he wants us to hear the trumpets blow. He gets to verse 14 and he's about to, he's about to blow the trumpets. He gave, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Grace of God appears. How has the grace of God appeared? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us. Gave himself for us. To redeem us from all of this stuff that we are called upon to renounce. And to cleanse for himself a people of his very own. This takes us back to the Old Testament. For example, Exodus 19. Moses went up the mountain. This, the children of Israel have come out of Egypt. It's really important to remember where they're headed. They've come out of Egypt. God has promised them a home. God has said, I have a, I have a homeland for you. It's a land, it's a good land. It's full of, it's flowing with milk and honey. It'll be a great place to live. It, it's, a, it's, it's a really special place. And I'll drive out your enemies. And you who have been slaves, you folks who have been slaving away in Egypt for Tyrants for 400 years, you have your own homeland, and you can, you can each one have your vine and your fig tree, and you can sit under your tree and just say, isn't life great? This is, what, this is what God says, I'm preparing for you. I am preparing for you a possession. I'm preparing uh, your own special possession, something that's just yours, the very best, and I'm preparing that for you. So they go out of Egypt and they get to Mount Sinai. Moses went up the mountain to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain, this is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Brought you to myself. There's a picture of an eagle out here in the hallway. God brought his people out of Egypt on eagle's wings to himself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. Note that you will be my own possession out of all the peoples. Israel is headed for the promise. The children of Israel are headed for the promised land where God is giving them a possession. 
the, the best of all places. And God, when they get to Sinai, he says, by the way, I'm taking the, you there because, I mean, you're getting a possession and I'm getting a possession and you are going to be my possession. The whole earth is mine, I made it, but there's, there's only, there's one thing I desire more than anything else that I've made and that's you. I want you to be my people. I want you to be my treasure. And think of all those folks who've been running away from fleeing from fires out west. Fire's coming. They have to go into their houses and they have to scramble to pick. What shall I take? What is it that I cannot bear to leave behind? Maybe they, some of them might not have thought of that, and so they have to kind of decide on the spot. But, but they're picking the things that are most precious to them. And of course, this, is, you know, this isn't fleeing from a fire. This is God saying, I'm bringing you in to give you a possession, and I'm doing this so that you will be my treasured possession. It's a wonderful picture of God's, God's love. Uh, you find this, uh, the same thing in Deuteronomy 7. Uh, Moses says, you're going into to the land. Don't make treaties with the inhabitants. Don't intermarry with them because they will turn the hearts, uh, you know, of your, turn your hearts away to follow other gods. Don't do that because you are my, you are my possession. You are my own people. Uh, same thing again in, in Deuteronomy 14.2. They weren't to imitate some of the practices of the pagans because they were God's special treasured possession. So when Paul says to Titus, he gave himself, Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, he's saying this is how God is bringing that to pass. This is how God is fulfilling that. You are, you are engrafted into this uh, special people upon whom God has set his love. And he's cleansed you to be that kind of people. So that's why it's important. That's why it's important that as uh, grace appears in your lives, that your lives should reflect grace. Well, this, um, this grace manifests itself in good works a people for God's very own, zealous for good works. And this is, like I said, I wanted to keep it simple today. What, what would display a passion for the Lord? What would display a sense of amazement that, that, God, uh, that God would send his son to give his son for us that we might be God's own special treasure? I think as I, I look back over 45 years of preaching and my biggest struggle, and, it, and it's, you know, it's not just looking back over my lifetime, it's kind of looking back over the history of the church, is how little passion, how little passion this message that the God of all creation would come and die for us to deliver us from evil, to give us an everlasting heritage, how little passion that just seems to generate. It's kind of like, oh, oh well, that's nice. <laughs> Glad to hear that. Can we move on now? I, I think the person who has helped me work through this the most in recent years has been a fellow named Robert Weber. Uh, wrote a book about uh, a book called the, the Divine Embrace. Uh, and his starting point is, uh, is one of the prayers in the, the prayer book of the Church of England. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross. 
that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. And it just, it's certainly in my own life and, and in the sphere of the church in which I've moved so much, it just, it's a, it puzzles me that that message does not create greater passion. So it's one of those places where I just, I can't connect the dots very well between what I read and, and how I find myself living and the, the, greater, the greater body of Christ. And may, maybe in retirement I'll have some, some time to work on that a little more. But uh, the Lord keeps it simple. What would passion look like? Zealous for good works. Your zeal for the Lord could be shown in good works. Uh, Titus 1.16 talks about false teachers. They are not fit for any good work. Uh, Titus 2.7, Timothy is to be an example of good works with integrity and indignity. Uh, Titus 3.8, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. 3.14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. I don't know that there's a strategy needed for this. I think all you need are neighbors. All you need is to find hurting people in your path. And there's an opportunity to display uh, your zeal for the amazing grace of God. Close with Heidelberg Catechism, uh, question and answer 86. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, why should we do good works? I hope you have a, some sense that there's an answer for that. Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also re restoring us by his spirit into his image so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits so that he may be praised through us, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Amen like to invite you to stand and we will confess our faith together with a, another word from the Heidelberg Catechism. The first question and answer, I'll put the question and we can all uh, join together in the answer. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on, to live for him. Amen.